Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. This week, we are beginning a series of special episodes to coincide with Storyology, the annual journalism conference that brings to Australia the industry's finest from around the world. Today, I spoke to Andrew Quilty, an award-winning photojournalist based in Kabul. Quilty left Sydney for Afghanistan almost four years ago, and he has documented the ongoing conflict in the country with stunning photography that won him the 2016 Gold Walkley for excellence in Australian journalism, making him the first photojournalist to ever win the award. I started by asking Quilty how he ended up in Afghanistan. I first went after a, a friend and colleague that I'd worked with a lot in uh, Sydney at uh, Fairfax asked me if I knew any photographers that worked in Afghanistan because she was planning a trip there. And without thinking too much about it, I put my hand up and I just said, I'll come with you. And, and that was it. We planned a, um, a short trip of no more than two weeks and two weeks came and came and went and we were far from ready to leave and we ended up staying for about three months and by the end of that three months I was kind of hooked so I, I flew back to Australia and packed up my things and, and headed back indefinitely. Can you tell us a bit about daily life and what if there was such a thing as an average work day for you what that would look like? Yeah I guess there's two types of average work days. Um, one is the fairly mundane day at home of either editing or admin, basically. I mean, it, it entails, you know, I guess exactly what it would for um, anyone else doing it in any other part of the country. But um, I usually like to try and get out. Well, not so much anymore. It's a bit more difficult nowadays. But um, I do like to try and get out at one point in the day, usually um, late afternoon to point my camera at something and but apart from that a more um active work day is usually i try to get out of Kabul as much as i can so work is often in the provinces and that usually involves more often than not a flight to a another provincial capital and driving around from there um it's it's pretty limited where and, and how far you can drive these days with the taliban presence sort of encroaching on on all the provincial capitals. Afghanistan is um, very diverse from, from province to province. So, I mean, it almost feels like trips into the provinces from Kabul are, are kind of equate to international trips elsewhere. It feels as though there's, there's that much, I guess, weight to a trip with the planning that's involved and with what is involved um, once you're on the ground can be quite a lot of planning involved just for a couple of days trip and you know sometimes for what's only a, a drive from Kabul of a couple of hours. And what do you do when you arrive in these areas out in the provinces? Mm -hmm. Do you work with a, a local fixer there or are you just out on your own trying to find your way around? No almost always with a local fixer. When I mean local I mean local to that specific area. Like I said from province to province they are very diverse and you really, I think you, you really need someone who's very familiar with the specifics of the, you know, the lay of the land in, in whatever particular area you're in, people and the politics and the, the roads and all, all those sorts of things. 
Are there any times that you've gone on one of these trips out of Kabul and found yourself in a sticky situation that perhaps you weren't prepared for? I mean, I've definitely found myself in tricky situations. On each of these trips, there is so much planning that goes into them. It's always a case of uh, plan for the worst and hope for the best. So usually while we might be surprised, say we, you know, whoever I'm traveling with, the fixer and usually another journalist, if something does happen, um, you know, that will often be if there's an incident on a road like an ambush or a, I mean, you know, even like a, a car accident that blocks a precipitous mountain road or something, we're usually prepared and um, we have a plan of sorts that we can enact if necessary. So, yeah, it's very much a yeah, plan for the worst and hope for the best. And so far, that's been uh, sufficient to uh, get us through. When you first arrived in Afghanistan at the end of 2013, NATO forces were preparing to withdraw and the country was supposed to be entering a period of rebuilding. Obama said the the light of a new day was on the horizon and our own Tony Abbott said that uh, our longest war was ending with hope. How did what you saw when you arrived compare to the descriptions of politicians at the time? Look, strangely enough, I wouldn't disagree with with the prospect of hope in, in late 2013, going to 2014. I think especially going into the elections of early 2014, there really was a sense of hope. You know, right up until election day, in fact, which was slated to be a, a day of a lot of violence. In fact, it, it went off without a hitch and people turned out in great numbers. But you could almost sense it. It was a real turning point that day. And um, I think from the day after, it was quite palpable, the, the sense that things uh, started to go downhill from there. That was due to a combination of factors, including, I think, uh, to begin with, the sort of implosion of the the voting process and the allegations of fraud between the two frontrunners that followed. And then it was compounded by the international combat troops pulling out at the end of 2014. And, and the Taliban were ready to pounce, and they, and they did. They took advantage of both those things. And they've kind of had the momentum ever since then. So this week we've seen President Trump announce that he's changed his mind about pulling all US troops out of Afghanistan and that he's approved what appears to be an open-ended military commitment to prevent terrorist safe havens there. Do you think that this is a positive development for the people of Afghanistan? I, I think it could be worse. I mean, I think the worst thing that could have been announced was that America was pulling out altogether, which I think would have been disastrous for Afghanistan. That said, I think in practice, um, practically speaking, Afghans in general, um, you know, and I, I'm reluctant to speak on their behalf, but I think when you see the interactions between, you know, regular Afghans on the street and Americans, there's a lot of antipathy there and uh, a lot of resentment just because they've been, I mean, Afghanistan has been occupied by one force or another for, for so long whether it be the Soviets, uh, you know, through the 80s or the, you know, the rest of the world since the turn of the century, you know, they're, they're tired of people meddling in their business. And, um, you know, it, ha it happens to be the Americans at this point. And, and when I say Americans, I think foreign forces are generally labelled as the Americans. That's, that's 
how people view the international coalition there that it's uh, you know american-led and they kind of lump everyone in under that title in theory those who support the afghan government afghans that support the afghan government realize that they need american help to prop up the government and maintain a measure of security that allows them to hold on to hold on to power without the taliban marching into kabul but at the same time they're they're tired of it you're listening to fourth estate You mentioned the election in 2014 and said that things started to really go downhill after that point. How has the country changed between then, between when you first arrived at the end of 2013 and the election that followed after that and now? I think there's just been a general a general decline in optimism and that can be seen in uh, the huge rate of unemployment. I mean, that that's the thing that really affects Afghans on a day-to-day basis now. It's just, uh, I think, you know, it must be climbing up to around 50%. Last time I heard, which might have been a year ago, it was 40% unemployment. But the feeling on the street is that it's very difficult to find a job, particularly for those who are educated and who have spent years at university. There's just, uh, there's very little opportunity for them to utilise their, their education, which was one of the great things that, that did come in, out of this intervention, I think did open up a lot of opportunities for, for young Afghans that otherwise may not have uh, presented themselves under a much stricter and less uh, capable administration of the, that the Taliban led in the late 90s and 2001. But there's just nowhere for young educated Afghans to go after that. So a lot of them, you find that a lot of them are trying to leave the country. So you have that real uh, sense of brain drain. And also just a, obviously a, a general lack of um, a feeling of security. I think you know there's very few Afghans anywhere in the country, even in Kabul now, who feel as though they can live a normal life without the threat of being caught up in, in some sort of attack or another. This is the longest war that the US has been involved in. It's also the longest war that Australia has been involved in. But I think a lot of Australians have lost track of what's happening in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Certainly there's much less media coverage, fewer foreign journalists stationed there reporting out to the world. What would you want Australians to know about Afghanistan? What do you think are the messages that they should understand from what's happening there? I think you're right um, in saying that I mean, you're obviously right. There's a less news coming out of there. And I think that's a result of, I mean, I think the general international level of interest in Afghanistan, I mean, in, in any in any place is proportional to the commitment from a given country to that country. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's across the board. I think international interest in general has, has waned since um, 80 or 90% of the international forces pulled out in 2014. What would I want people to know? I think one of the main reasons I'm there personally is to remind people that, you know, we we agreed being part of a democracy and, you know, ostensibly agreeing to get involved in Afghanistan. I think the Afghan people deserve some level of commitment to that commitment that we ourselves made. And I don't think 
we're really honouring that. And I think the premature withdrawal in, in 2014 is having pretty disastrous effects in the country. I mean, there were disastrous effects well before that. But I really just don't want people to forget how big of a hand the international community played in putting Afghanistan in the position that it's now in. I, I really just sort of want to keep it on the radar and remind people, hold hold our governments to account and not let people forget, you know, that we have a, a responsibility to follow through and not leave Afghanistan worse off than we found it. I've read you describing the dysfunction that 40 years of war has instilled in every level of Afghan society. Can you explain what that looks like day to day and how does it impact upon your work there? It's a good question. I, I mean, I think there's a a broad level of, of trauma that, that almost you know, any Afghan who has, who has lived for any length of time in that country has taken on, whether it be physical or, or psychological. There's no definitive studies on it, but um, anecdotally, I think there's a lot of evidence of mental harm, you know, post-traumatic stress and depression and anxiety that goes untreated, let alone um, diagnosed. I mean, you see tempers flare very easily on the streets, you know, small traffic incidents will result in, you know, fist fights on the street in Kabul. And you also see a, a kind of resignation you know sometimes it can be hard to differentiate between that and resilience but um you know this kind of resignation to the lot that afghans have found themselves in and often find myself saying that afghans are are used to war but they're tired of it and i think there's that real kind of weariness that's evident you know in in many individual cases and, and broadly across the spectrum You did a feature for SBS that documented 28 days in Afghanistan. And in those 28 days, there were a number of explosions. It was three or four explosions just in that time. You said that the Afghans are used to war. When these kind of bombings are so frequent, how do you respond to them every time? Is there any feeling that it's just more of the same? How do you avoid that? Um, yeah, it's a good question, and uh, you know, it's something I'm sort of wrestling with at the moment because it's—I definitely uh, do feel that way, and it's very frustrating to watch it all kind of unraveling. And I think it probably going to be the reason that I, when I do choose to, you know, move on, go somewhere else, that will play a large part in that decision because. It's, um, you know, fortunately for me, I have the luxury of being able to leave. Um, unlike, of course, the vast majority of Afghans who hold a passport, which is, you know, pretty um, worthless uh, internationally. It's difficult and I don't, know, I don't know how to deal with it, except to say that, you know, aren't I lucky to be able to take matters into my own hands and, and disappear when it becomes too much? A lot of your work involves photographing people who've just experienced trauma. How do you navigate those situations? Look, I think it's no different to a journalist working anywhere um, on any subject. There's a necessity to empathise with with the subject you're talking to. That's another thing that um, becomes hard to do when this is, you know, happening day in, day out. I think my my capacity for empathy becomes challenged. And on a broad scale... I have a huge amount of empathy for what Afghanistan is going through, but on on a smaller scale, 
you know, meeting these people day in, day out, it's, it's tiring. And um, I do, um, you know, sometimes ask myself, you know, why am I not um, hit harder by witnessing these stories? I guess the best you can do is to, is to empathize as much as you can. And I don't know, again, I think maybe that will play a, a role in my decision to leave if, if I find that um, my, my capacity for empathy is, is so diminished that I lose that, I guess, that, that edge in my work and I, the feeling becomes perhaps something that I need to uh, embellish somehow in my, in my work and it doesn't come as naturally. You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Olivia Rosenman and I'm speaking with Andrew Quilty. You've written about Afghans' contradictory views on privacy, how out in the street any incident will attract huge crowds, but in the house privacy is sacrosanct. Can you tell me a little bit more about this and how does that affect your work? It's complicated, specifically with with women. Um, it, it's very difficult for me as a as a male and as a as a foreign male. Generally, the rules are I can't be in a room inside a house alone with a, a married woman or a you know even a, a non married woman of a certain age. So that makes it very difficult for getting personal accounts from women for me. It's usually you know interviews will often be done via a either a, a husband or a, a male a guardian of some sort a father or an uncle which can be very frustrating and then uh, on the street so it's kind of a, a bit of a dance you have to do to to negotiate those complexities i mean if i lift my camera to photograph a a woman on the street even if she's you know fully clad in a in a burqa for example it will often be the case that i'll have men who have no relationship with this woman, you know, running across the street and, you know, haranguing me to not to take pictures because, you know, as they say, you know, this is, this is our custom, you know, w- women are sacred. And, you know, I, f- I find that, to be honest, um, very frustrating. I feel as though it's a, it's an ownership kind of uh, custom. Um, and I don't, I mean, it's something that I, you know, we're, we're supposed to, we're taught that, you know, we're meant to tolerate um, cultures other than our own. Um, and that's something I'm very aware of. But it's something that the, the longer I'm there, the harder I find to tolerate. And I, um, you know, I, I think also after 15 years of, you know, attempts to further women's rights, I think it's frustrating to witness those kind of kinds of things on the street day to day where, women you know really still don't have much of their own agency there and they're, they're being spoken for by men you know even men who who they've never met there's that real you know like i say a sense of ownership and it's it's um it's something that i do find frustrating but yeah again like i say it's it's a bit of a dance and you you know you sort of find ways to work around it and to be somewhat surreptitious and to be not uh, not too confrontational when such issues arise, but it's I mean it's something that's more instinctive than considered um, on a you know on a, when it does occur. I've read you writing about 
frustration and certainly other freelance journalists as well that newspapers and publishers are increasingly less willing to support reporting trips to places that are deemed too risky. You wrote in your 28-day photo journal for SBS that that had been the case for one trip you wanted to take. How do you deal with that and how do you think that the newspapers could better manage this issue? Well, I think unfortunately it's a, a matter of cost. I think to to do these things to go to these kinds of places where you know extra levels of security are necessary the only way to undertake such trips is to spend money on um, security or on contingency plans on insurance and that kind of thing on i mean on training that's one way and i and i've just actually last week done a course in negotiating hostile environments which was sponsored by the the Pulitzer Center in in America and and also funded by various other uh, big news organizations so that that's one thing otherwise it's it's really um i mean that this is something that news organizations are struggling with across the board not um i think this is you know a, a very distant end of the spectrum i think you know to be able to fund foreign reporting in in dangerous areas is a luxury these days um, and very few uh, publications are, are able to afford it. So I think um, I think it's an easy and an obvious tip of, of the spectrum to cut off, you know, at the other end in the big uh, bureaus in, the, in major cities and people and jobs are getting cut left, right and centre. And if you've just got this one very expensive member of staff or a freelancer who's, you know, requires so much more resources than your average reporter in a in a bureau in a major non-conflict zone, it's obviously going to suffer. It's obviously going to be the one that uh, loses out. So it's a funding issue. And I think until someone can, can you know, produce the silver bullet to um, to replace the the old funding models of advertising and that kind of thing. We're going to continue to come up against it. Well, absolutely. And, and let alone reporting trips. I, I wanted to ask you if you experience newspapers being increasingly less willing to even pay for your professional work, so especially in breaking news situations when they could just pay a pittance for someone's picture on social media or even just steal it from social media is that something that you found i'm not sure if i've noticed it increasing but i mean it's always been it's always something i've dealt with from time to time and it's particularly noticeable particularly egregious in a, in a place like afghanistan where you're where you're kind of putting your your safety on the line in some cases particularly in those kind of breaking news scenarios when uh, someone presumes they can they can take your work for for nothing so i'm usually pretty blunt if if such a request is made and yeah i don't, I don't sort of pull any punches in those in those situations andrew thank you so much for joining us on fourth estate pleasure olivia thank you for having me that's it for us this week on fourth estate make sure you tune in next week when i'll be hosting a live panel from the storyology conference with aaron glance jared ryle Kate McClymont and Siddharth Varadarajan talking about investigative journalism. Keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at Fourth Estate AU. And if you like the show, leave us a review in iTunes. It takes two minutes and it really does help other people to find the show. 
I'm Olivia Rosenman. Thank you for listening to Fourth Estate.